0: Welcome to day two cloud. Oh, Ned, we got a good one today. Uh, This is with our sponsor, Blue Cat Networks. And we talk about some stuff that may be self-evident to some of you that are listening. That is going from on-prem to cloud, integrating those two environments. It's not a straightforward thing. And it's not just a technology problem, although I guess it is, but it's also this human problem. And we talk about some of those things. And then And the second half of the show, we really dive into this relating to DNS specifically, something, one of the several things that Blue Cat specializes in. Ned, what was one of your takeaways from the show?
1: Yeah, I think what really stood out for me is Andrew Workin, our guest, made a point that you can't continue to do things in the cloud with traditional tool sets, traditional processes. You have to update both the tech and the people that are operating that tech, whether it's a process or the way that two different groups collaborate. So that was a big focus for me throughout the entire conversation was that need for better collaboration and newer processes.
0: And I got to admit, when that point came up, Ned, I had a little bit of a sad as an old school DNS human uh, (laughs) going back in the day, plain old DNS doesn't get the job done anymore in a modern cloud environment. Enjoy this show with Andrew Wordkin of Blue Cat Networks. Andrew Wertkin, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. And uh, we, we got a report we want to get to that you guys have commissioned and uh, and have a lot of interesting information for us to talk about there. But before we get to those details, I want to set the show up this way. We know, because Ned and I talk to a lot of different cloud practitioners, people that are hands-on, that this adoption process is difficult to go to cloud to begin with. You throw in multi-cloud, it's that much worse hybrid cloud, same kind of challenges, getting all this stuff mashed together is, is painful. If you could kind of summarize it to a few main factors that are making this cloud adoption and integration with our IT practices difficult, how would you describe that?
2: Sure, I mean, I think it's almost an age-old problem of scale. You know, it's easy to do something in isolation once, looks good, looks easy, and then you try to scale and the complexity just starts um compounding and it it starts compounding because you've done things in different ways in different places without necessarily having any of the governance and architecture that that you know companies were sort of born on in the IT world and so you end up creating chaos quickly and i think that's that's part of of you know sort of part and parcel of the issue is is uh complexity
1: right I- just to boil that down a little bit, it reminds me of you have that shadow it thing where our finance department went off and launched this SAS application and that was easy for them, but they didn't think about the difficult bits of getting it integrated into the larger it ecosphere. Is that kind of what you're pointing at?
2: Exactly. Or, you know, your, whatever, your e-commerce team went and built some new application on AWS without, you know, any thought about how that would get integrated as well. And, uh, you know, it's funny. A, a local bank here. You created this whole digital lab to try to do things differently. And the story is that they've talked about publicly, but I won't say the bank name in case I'm wrong. But I think I'm right. Is that they went and built a new like mortgage processing application that was completely focused. Like they're doing this correct. You know, they're doing it with all these new agile processes. They're going to go interact with customers nonstop. They're going to figure out where all the problems are in the process, and they're going to deliver the perfect application. And they did a nice job. And then they were asked, okay, let's go live with this. And everybody was like, are you nuts? This isn't going to scale. Like we haven't thought of this. 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 What ends up happening is that stuff gets pushed to production rapidly, not in this case, but that stuff gets pushed to production rapidly. And now you've got all these builders, all these problems, all these missing components of the architecture, all of these problems and trying to scale it. And when you're not actively planning, but you're reacting, Oftentimes you just make things worse because now you're just band-aiding stuff, you know, as opposed to actually having a methodology of how you're going to build scalable things in the cloud.
1: Right. So you start with what is the ideal app for the end user or the ideal application for whatever services, but you're just trying to get the code right. You're not necessarily concerned about all the surrounding things like scaling it, like adding security, like integrating with the other components in your ecosystem, right?
2: Right. And this is, you're using newer technology, technology Mm -hmm. that there's not institutional knowledge and experience with. It hasn't been used in anger. And so you don't really understand how it scales or what the best practices are.
1: I like that. Hasn't been used in anger. Can you, can you expand on that (laughs) a little bit? Because I've heard that phrase before, but I'm curious what context you're using that in
2: you know i've been i i don't even know where i picked that up from i've been saying it for a long time i often also say that like you don't really understand something until you've failed multiple times right you know and uh and and that's that's part of what i mean by used in anger you know like you, you've you've th- this thing is not being used in a lab anymore there's going to be unpredictable usage patterns there's going to be people doing things that you weren't expecting it's you know you you've flipped the switch on and there's no way you could have predicted every possible fault mode. You know, there, there's mm-hmm. just no way. Mm, yep. And so that used in anger is really, <laughs> is really around that. Like you just, you, you've, the floodgates are now open.
0: You're going to build a new web server, Andrew, and it's going to have IPv6 on it, and you're going to use CertBot and set up Let's Encrypt, and you're going to think it's binding correctly. You've tested it. It seems fine, only you don't have v6 at your house. And uh, lo and behold, someone else, a security professional, let's say, testing the website says, hey, your TLS is broken. Things like this happen, and you just don't know till you know. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) But it will never happen to you again.
0: It will never happen to me again. Right. Um, those of you listening, I, I had a bad experience anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> but but that's part of it, right? You, you've gained wisdom because of a failure. If, you know, before that happened, then you like thousands or tens of thousands of people who have used CertBot and it's trivial and it has an NGINX yeah. plugin. And yeah. holy, what, like now I have a Cert and it's going to auto renew, fantastic. You know, And but now you sort of, know a little bit more and
0: and now you know now I know it's a thing yeah because I'm using it in anger
1: I feel like any technical professional who's been doing this for a while knows if things go smoothly the first time you miss something
0: yeah Yes. Sadly, true.
1: There yeah. is just no way you did it all right the first time. If I set up like a CI/CD pipeline and it's all green the first time it runs, no, no, something is <laughs> yeah. absolutely wrong there, and it always is. Once I start picking apart, I'm like, oh, it just skipped six of the steps, so of course nothing errored out.
2: <laughs> yeah, but and that's, I guess, that's what we're getting to though, right? Because that's the experience gained from things failing and understanding how things behave and understanding why green doesn't always mean good, you know, and <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, without that experience and, and, a lot of this technology is new. So you, you don't have the institutional knowledge without that experience, then people make naive errors and now compound that to something as massive as some cloud migration. And on top of everything, what the cloud providers are offering is changing underneath you.
0: you is, know, is this a technology problem, Andrew, or is this a people problem?
2: I think with, like with everything, it's it's a bit of both, right? And I, th- I think, look, the people problem side of this, you know, lack of coordination and cooperation historically between cloud teams and traditional infrastructure teams, there's a people side to it that has nothing to do with technology in some cases. We just, you know, let's find this age old, like you guys are too slow, so we're gonna do it and we're gonna do it better type world. So maybe it's not all wound together but but usually it is, and it's from a technology standpoint this stuff isn't easy; it looks easy if you do something trivial or small, you can launch a virtual machine in a couple of clicks, whatever that seems easy. but taking an application, breaking it down, creating a cloud native version of it, deploying it, all the different components you need from a from a application side, networking side, security side, expecting it's gonna scale, that's hard. And and there's a lot of companies out there, you know, it's funny, like the cloud was the best thing ever. And now, like Ethan, you mentioned before, just the sort of cost of, and I think this was probably before we started recording, but you're referring to a specific (laughs) article, in terms of like the cost of cloud over time. And, mm. and part of that is just, okay, but now I can't move because I'm so wedded. I'm so, I've built everything specifically for AWS or Azure or something like that. And then in comes all of this additional technology like Kubernetes and things like that. And now, okay, so now I can really achieve my goal of loosely coupled systems that can run anywhere. But you're just continuing to layer on more complexity. <sighs> To get to something that's going to meet your requirements and the amount of people and experience and technology you need, even though there's companies out there that will say no problem, just, you know, magic, it's going to work. Yeah, it'll, it'll work, you know, the first time, maybe the second time, mm-hmm. but, but you truly don't understand it. And the technology is just getting more complex. And I'm not trying to say like the world's turning to chaos on the technology side. I just think that this assumption that cloud is easier than on-premises is wrong. There is so much promise around cloud. I love the fact that any company, you know, like you sort of like drop the barrier to entry into markets. People can build technology rapidly. I can build brand new security architectures that are way more secure than anything I could have done on-premises without layering out on all this other stuff. You know, there's so much goodness and so much um, promise but there's just this naive view that these few guys over there can just go deploy stuff at scale.
1: I think there were like two big early fallacies of cloud adoption. The first one is that it was going to be cheaper. And the second one is that it was going to be simpler. And like neither of those have really borne out. And we've had a lot of people on the show giving their anecdotal experience around this saying, you know, we tried to go through this and these are the roadblocks we hit. But I think what's really interesting is you actually... Your company commissioned a report around cloud adoption, and this is not just anecdotal. It's actual, you know, statistics and pretty pictures and all that kind of stuff. Right. So c- can you tell us a little bit about how the report was composed and some of the, it, like, key findings that are within that
2: report? So we, along with EMA, and really EMA drove all the research and just speaking to many, many technology professionals out there around their, their company's cloud adoption and, and spoke to people on both sides of it. You know, those helping to drive the adoption and those that, uh, you know, are sort of part of the traditional team that might not have been directly involved in it and just talked about success rates, problems, what problems they might be having. And the numbers were through the roof. I mean, you know, 72% of companies were not meeting their goals there, you know, the, and, and, and the reasons were fairly common. A lot of it had to do, and and, and by the way, not meeting their goals was either from cost or they're having operational issues and outages, or there were security concerns. And in so many of the cases, and a lot of that just focused on a lack of collaboration between these two different deployment domains, um, what I'll generally call on-premises and cloud. And those that reported some level of success. Also reported a higher level of collaboration, both organizationally and technically, across those two different domains. So what surprised me was just how many companies were reporting that they weren't meeting their objectives, that these things were not going well. What didn't surprise me because it certainly was my sense. It's why we commissioned the report. It was our hypothesis that collaboration had a lot of had a lot to do with the failures. and so we we're sort of very careful not to have one of these lead the witnesses, you know, research uh, <laughs> to sort of prove the hypothesis. Instead, we we asked a bunch of different questions to try to drive to the root cause. And, uh, and that just kept coming up over and over and over again.
0: When you say failed to meet their goals in the cloud, what does that mean? They couldn't get as many workloads moved. They couldn't meet their cost objectives. What, what do we mean they failed?
2: It, so it was either in time In other words, we had a goal to get, you know, we had, we still have several customers that have like, you know, an IT goal of 80% move to cloud by 2024 or something like that. You know, so we're going to shut down these data centers by this date. So there's the time dimension of failure. There's the cost dimension for sure. You know, our expectation was we would be able to do things cheaper. It's more expensive or it's not cheaper. And then there's also security and resilience, you know, reliability of the technology uh, failures as well. And when you look at which types there were, uh, you know, most, many companies had, you know, unless my math is wrong, many companies had multiple because they were all over 50%.
1: Wow. We were talking about the technology before, but I think you cited the larger thing, which is like the technology is hard. I wouldn't say the technology is easy. Because some people will say they'll be like, "Ah, oh, the tech is easy. People are difficult." It's like, no, the tech is hard. It's just people are harder. <laughs> people are more difficult. Uh, so that seems to be one of the conclusions of the report: is a lack of collaboration between the people and the organization. Did it seem to matter the size of the organization or the structure of the organization?
2: Size, maybe, maybe not. Um, other than You know, the complexity is usually higher in larger organizations. But from an organization standpoint, when there were things like, you know, single owners or, you know, oftentimes you look at sort of the classic large IT organization and the CIO works for the CFO because IT is about cost and cost containment. (laughs) And the cloud teams are either working for a business unit or they work for the CTO. Hmm. And so now you have these Two different executives in the company driving completely different agendas with different KPIs and metrics on their success, and you saw a lot of this between security and broader IT before where those were completely separate organizations they both had their you know architecture engineering and operations teams and you saw a lot of combination at the architecture and engineering side ops still might be specialized and separate, but now with sort of like NetOps 2.0 and that sort of stuff maybe coming back together. But you saw these sort of duplicative organizations that were competing. And so that almost drives a separate type of um, approach, which which from a collaboration standpoint, just you're starting with the wrong foot forward. I'm not saying that all technology should be under one executive at all, (laughs) because that doesn't work. You know, right. the business units are turning into technology creators. You know, they're not just waiting around for IT to get stuff done. So I'm not saying that that everything needs to come together. I, I am saying sort of at that architecture level and and in some cases at the engineering level, there has to be deep collaboration. And if that requires either virtual organizations or permanent organizations in different specific areas, well, that makes sense.
0: At the risk of sounding trite, I'm going to ask this question, but doesn't DevOps solve that? And that, I know that's trite because DevOps is a buzzword and so on. But what I really am getting at is if you move to that model of delivering applications, it does change your processes internally that forces some level of collaboration so that everybody is following this deployment model. Is it, <laughs> So did I just make that up, Andrew, or is that actually a, a, a thing that maybe helps some organizations?
2: I still think I believe this which is you know devops exists because of a need for a bandaid between two different organizations and and ultimately you know those developing the applications should be developing them with ci cd and everything and you know the the DevOps guys end up being dev guys or ops guys in some end state. And and maybe I'm wrong there. Um, <sighs> you know, I haven't discussed this for a while, but, but outside of that, Ethan, I think the issue though is when people think of DevOps, they think more about how are we going to deploy this thing mm. versus a, okay, so we're going to use 10 different regions of Azure globally. How are we going to route network traffic? You know, um mm. and, and what do we need to do in order to do that successfully and cheaply and reliably and gain the best effort, uh, the best, you know, have the best consequences. And so I think unless that work has been done ahead of time, those organizations are automating, I guess they're optimizing locally and nobody's thinking globally.
0: Well, there's two different things there, right? There's the infrastructure and how everything is interconnected, the platform upon which you're delivering applications in this complex environment. But then there's also two different ways to look at DevOps. DevOps as a separate group that's this tertiary thing that's supposedly a bridge between dev and ops. And we've talked to different people there, and that tends to not work so well. Right. And then DevOps as a mindset and a practice where we are changing how we deliver infrastructure and applications, that is the one that does seem to work, but yes. is harder to do.
2: Correct. Yeah. And and when I was saying DevOps sort of its value as a band-aid, I was talking about the first the first part there. And and I I, uh, I mean yeah. to offend zero people when I say DevOps <laughs> is a band-aid, but DevOps is a practice 100 percent aligned with you. And and for sure. And yes, you know, and if you start thinking that way across all of your infrastructure, you know, anything that needs to change or be orchestrated to successfully, you have to measure things differently, right? Start measuring the successful push, you know, the successful changes. And what I mean by that is, you know, like we have customers that would measure, okay, there's more API calls now. Our goal is everything needs to be via API. And now there's way more API calls. And you're like, okay, but are they successful? You know, you, you've you've now exposed APIs to non-experts in that area and you've given them the keys to make changes. Are they the right changes? You know, and, uh, and, and how much work are you doing? embedding your knowledge into the apis that you're giving them so um let me give you let me give you a real example like in in our world i'm going to deploy an application on a network and therefore i need a bunch of ip addresses if you give me a api that allows me to go reserve an ip address any ip address i want that's not particularly helpful because i don't know what network i should go to i don't know you know i I don't want to i don't want to have the last IP address in a slash 24. I might need 20 or 30 or 40. You know, I've got this stuff might be internet facing. This stuff might, you know, need to communicate with this other security zone over there. I need help, you know, and and normally I would just fill out some help desk ticket or whatever, you know, something Mm -hmm. or have a conversation. Now it's up to me. I'm going to go get this IP address. If I get the wrong one, that's potentially problematic. So, how do I expose a set of APIs that allow for successful automation? And that's a lot of what DevOps and others, th- those functions or those, those people are building out there is you know higher level APIs that allow for success because they embed in the requirements that every single technologist on the team shouldn't have to know, but you want them all to comply with.
1: Right, you're trying to bake that institutional knowledge into the APIs and automation that folks are interacting with so they they don't shoot themselves in the foot. They There's protections built in for them. And maybe there's a way around some of those controls if they really know what they're doing, but you want to give them sane defaults.
2: Right, yeah, 100%. And not make them be experts in every different area because that's, that's not going to happen. You know, you don't want... You know, it, it, it used to be, you know, back back in my enterprise software days, we would go, we would go try to sell our software, and uh, and the goal was get the business to buy in before IT finds out about this. <laughs> because once IT finds out about this, your this is going to slow down big time. But if the business oh, yeah. says we desperately need this, make it happen. That's the world you want. If IT got involved too early, you got the eighty-three page specification on network requirements. And now, now you were scrambling to figure out how you're going to move like, you know, hundreds of gigabytes of data across like a, you know, some ISDN line they have between, you know, two points or something, you know, versus the business telling them that's got to go because we've got to move the data. And my point is now as network practitioners or, you know, practitioners in any infrastructure area, we have this amazing opportunity to build something that can meet the you know unpredictable needs of the business at some predictable cost, and that's where cloud becomes an amazing opportunity because you can't do that if you are in this world of project based i t where you need to know the end game before it starts. you know and uh, and so I, I guess my point with that is a lot of people also look at this as a okay, so cloud's hard. We talked about you know there's people issues, there's technology issues part of those people issues are sort of the old versus new view of the world. From my perspective, it's like a rally call. Like, this is exciting. You know, that we are now part of the business's strategy. We are now, we you know, the technology we're building now has real relevance to our success as a business. What do we need to do differently? And that mindset I think is critical.
1: I think, one of the things I've seen with DevOps is sort of an expansion of the term. There was like DevOps, and then there was DevSecOps, and then there was DevSec, yeah, Net, Sec, Net Net ops
2: DevSecOps, right?
1: Right. And <laughs> I think what what they what people were trying to get at was that need, like you're saying, of a collaboration between multiple different departments. And by just sticking them all in into one big term, it, it got a little ridiculous, a little out of hand. Right. But I see what they were going for. You need all these groups involved in the early portions of the architecture so that you get it right. And that's what they were trying to get at, even though the term, I mean, it got a little
2: out of hand. Yeah. <laughs> no, 100%. And a, and a lot of the solutions you see out there for these teams are are necessary, but they're sort of like, okay, it's built. Now we've got this awesome platform for AI ops or something like that. So now we're going to tell you if there's a problem. And we'll, we'll potentially automatically fix it for you, but where are the tools for building it in the first place, you know, correctly. And, and, you know, in that, obviously there's tons of tools for building it. My point is for building one thing or it, or that, you know, versus, um, what my architecture should look like. I think there's just not enough emphasis on that work up front. And I'm really sounding like a non-agile type person. (laughs) (laughs) I've I've built a career driving agile software development. I believe wholeheartedly in that. I just believe that a lot of those processes, because I see you know, McKinsey, Accenture, those guys are out there selling like agile now to the CEO level. And back when I can go visit customers, like I'd see these big, broad signs everywhere about agile transformations that used to be in the software teams. Now they're in the business teams. We're going to be an agile organization. And here's what that's going to mean. And I be- fundamentally believe in, in agile practices. I just feel like they, they focus on some part of the overall process and where they don't work well in many cases is in that upfront architecture. And, and that doesn't mean you need to go spend a year building some architecture. But if you skip through that and we're just gonna go agile, we're gonna start writing code and we'll figure it out because you know, hmm. we'll, we'll, you know we'll, we'll just sort of amass this architecture over time. That only works in simple
0: cases. Well Andrew I want to get into some specific stuff. So we've we've really set up the problems here dealing with cloud, multi-cloud, and hybrid cloud, the people challenges, how groups are organized. We, we've talked through that. So let's dive into some technical examples. You, you were with Blue Cat Networks. You folks are really good at at several things, but DNS is one of them, which happens to be something near and dear to my heart, going back to when I was the DNS hostmaster at an ISP 20 years ago or so. So I've always been uh, keeping up with DNS and it's and it's problems because the 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 meme it's always d n s it it exists for a reason right it sure does so we've had for a lot of years a goal of of a unified d n s is how I would think of it as as a person primarily responsible for d n s in an organization, and d n s is popping up all over the place increasingly now you've got cloud with its own DNS, uh, perhaps, and Kubernetes needing core DNS for service discovery and your own internal domains. And then the marketing folks have bought 50 sound alike domains for brand protection and, and right. so on. So how do you, how do you get this under one operational umbrella, one, one approach to deal with this? I think when we were prepping the show, Andrew, you described it as this refracturing of DNS. How did right. we get a handle on this?
2: Yeah, and that's really what it was. I mean, you know, our is. Our goal and the goal of our customers were quite aligned in the past. There should be a single control plane for DNS inside my company because this stuff is critical, and the more islands there are, the more hands in the pot, the more people trying to deploy this, the more likely is there's going to be outages. That's what we were trying to solve when we bought your technology. And now, yes, I'm deploying to Azure, AWS, Google, wherever I'm deploying, there's different flavors of DNS for different tiers that you're it's going to fracture again. And you have people that can just go create zones, you know, and uh, and we see it fracture in in horrible ways. You know, like I can't reach that DNS server from the cloud that's on premises. So I'm basically going to create an Etsy host file, but I won't do that. Instead I'll just recreate that same zone in Route 53 and hard code the answers. I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to, I know the DNS, the IP address of a DNS server on-premises, so I'm going to use that. And nobody knows I'm using that and that thing's going out of service or we're taking that thing down for service and I'm bound to just that one IP address. And nobody knows it's going to affect my application. So it's the same stuff. And you've got this group of people, when there's a DNS issue, their goal, you know, what they're measured on is is successful DNS resolution. And so we changed our focus um, from trying to ensure that, you know, there was our customers and our again, we had the same goal, which was put it all in BlueCat, to a different goal, which is every DNS query should be resolvable, that that's, you know, is supposed to resolve quickly. And the the tools are needed, visibility is needed. We 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 need to be, you know, in order to ensure that we need to know what's going on. So how can we create uh, resolvers that can do the magic for our customers and resolve those records wherever they might be, discover where they might have, you know, new zones might have been created and basically create a federated view of DNS and the tools to navigate that federated view. Um, and, and we've been focusing on that very heavily. So assume the world will be fractured and solve the problem now. And the problem is the same problem has always been, I need to be able to resolve these queries. I've just made it harder but I can't use the you know the the old answer I, there's I need new technology to to approach that
0: do we mean fractured that there are multiple copies of the same zone with different answers because people went off and did their thing do we mean fractured because of just different orgs and people with different layers of responsibility maybe it's both of those things
2: both both of those things and and sometimes by the way the same zone with different answers managed by completely different people is purposeful. You know, for instance, um, I might be deploying an application in multiple virtual private clouds. That application uses the same names. It's going to get different answers because I might be using different IP addresses, for instance. So yeah, I'm going to have different copies of that same internal zone and that's fine. You know, it's, it's hundred percent fine. And so there's bad cases of that, which is like the one I mentioned, where I'm just going to recreate a zone because uh, it's basically, you know, I convinced myself I'm not hard coding it with an host file, but I've recreated the zone somewhere. That's the bad side of that, but 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 still, yeah, it, it's the, by the fracturing, I mean there's multiple people that are permitted to and are deploying authoritative DNS servers inside the organization or utilizing cloud providers' authoritative services.
0: And you're not saying that this fracturing of DNS is necessarily a bad, horrible thing to be avoided. It is an operational reality to be managed.
2: It should be avoided in the before state because it leads to problems. It always does because, you know, new zone is launched somewhere and somebody forgets to add a forwarder to some windows DNS server in Australia and problems (laughs) ensue, you know? So now what we're not saying is go crazy what, what, <laughs> be, because that just makes it harder to maintain. What, what we're saying is uh, there are real use cases where the cloud provider's DNS should be used. I'm using some of their cloud-native services that are doing you know, health-based DNS answers for their services. So to go tell a team, no, you can't use that you know that that's anti dns you know like i'd be a hypocrite you know like that's cool <laughs> right I, I want that's what i want as a cloud technologist so so i'm going to use those services that's the reality and we think there should be some governance around how they're used because you know again you 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 can establish some pretty poor practices right away and so have some governance on how they're used and each of the different cloud providers have you know, it looks alike when you read their web pages, when you look at their APIs, but they have very different capabilities on the DNS side, and they change over time. And so, have some governance, have some understanding, and then what we're doing is bringing order to that uh, potential chaos. E- even if it's well, you know, it's 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 not chaos. It, it was structured appropriately. You still have you still have uh, these issues. You know, we have um, the other example, Ethan, of of same zone is like Microsoft for its private endpoints uses like you, you have to use their zones. You can create a C name to it, but you have to use like whatever it is, private link dot database yeah. dot Microsoft dot net or something yeah, like yeah.
1: that. Mm-hmm.
2: And then we'll have customers who are trying to resolve those from the data center. And they run into a problem because there's multiple subscriptions in Azure with different zones that are the same name and you're like, oh my God, like that, that's not for DNS to solve. You know, like that's a bad <laughs> idea what you've done. Those names should stay in those subscriptions and shouldn't be, not be used outside of those subscriptions, but we're using them. So we're focusing on allowing them, oddly enough, to use those sorts of things internally and, and using DNS to facilitate finding the right one. But again, they're, to start with, that as an example is a very bad practice.
1: Right. To to split it into three things that jump out to me, there's the initial architecture. So you're trying to to develop an initial architecture that takes into account the fact that you're going to have this fractured DNS. Right. Then there's the day-to-day management uh, and operations of it. And then there's effectively monitoring it so you're actually aware of all the different things that are going on. Maybe we can start with the architecture point and... What should you be thinking about from an overall architecture standpoint if you have the chance to actually start designing some of this stuff out instead of just reacting to the environment you have?
2: I think the things you want to make sure are part of the architecture are a clear delineation between zones that uh, or DNS records that are private to a, a segmented network, for instance. You know, like this stuff is never going to bleed out and anything that needs to be shared or bled out and number 1 if the line between those two things aren't clear if i start using things in one of these segmented networks that really should only be used within it that's when like real operational issues so at the very at the, high, at the broadest level this is it's all private dns right we're not talking about public dns on the internet but there's like private private dns you know private to my <laughs> tenant and then external to my tenant. And I think much like we used to think about uh, firewalls and networking, like, you know, I, this, I, I'm not saying we need to say this IP address is allowed to get to these three DNS records, but there should be some declarative understanding of the DNS dependencies between these different areas so that there's, um you know, an understanding of the broader resolution paths in the organization. Think about a resolution path. How, if I need this cloud tenant needs to resolve records in these zones, how do I make sure that happens efficiently, rapidly, and always? And that they're getting the right answer. And and so we should be looking at the DNS dependencies between these different deployment domains as well. Mm -hmm. Those are the core parts of the architecture.
0: So architecturally with DNS, the way you traditionally would solve this, you're gonna have a authoritative top of the domain hierarchy. You can have some authoritative server that then delegates with ns records off to subdomains is that what we're talking about and and i'm asking it contextually here andrew we said earlier you can have the same domain that depending on where it lives could be serving up two different answers and you don't solve that problem with ns records you would have to solve that problem with dhcp serving up different name servers for different hosts depending on where they're coming from something like that so (laughs) i'm thinking through this going okay how do you actually have a single source of dns truth
2: Right. There are some zones that might live in the cloud that you're going to delegate off with your NS records and this is just, you know, cloud.company.com, right? And cloud.company.com yeah. is going to be in that authority over there. DNS was made for that. That's how it all works. Fantastic. You, you you certainly can't do that in the case where, you know, that you mentioned, but also what you end up having in the in the cloud domains is people just create zones that have no delegation point and You can't in many of the clouds delegate from those somewhere else. So they just simply create the zone. You know, they go in and create cloud.company.com with no delegation at all. And that starts with the band-aids because now people on premises need forwarders and forwarders break like, you know, it's, it's a rule that's made to fail at some point because something changes and somebody forgets that there's some forwarding rule somewhere. You're not using DNS's delegation anymore. But again, the reality is that's going to happen. So yeah. that's part of the magic. And I don't want to make this a Blue Cat commercial, but that's the pain, Ethan. You nailed it. And that's part of what we're doing with, we've got this idea of namespaces where we can actually go navigate different authorities that might have the same zone without delegation and without the sort of complicated world of of forwarding. And uh, And by the way, forwarding on its own isn't complicated. What's complicated is, 5,329 different forwarding rules across different DNS servers that nobody knows how they got there or if they're important anymore. That's fragility. <laughs> yes. So yeah, so we're, we're doing that and we're trying to do that from a, you know, I, I've got this big focus here and I, I think as everybody should, you know, DTP and DNS are, are core to service discovery. DTP is like one of the first service discovery protocols out there. You know, hello, do you have some configuration information for me Is is how every you know, DHCP connected host starts the day, right? Mm -hmm. So in the world of like managing this stuff though, it's never been about service discovery. It's been about upfront configuration. Assume the end state you want, configure for that. And so what we're also investing in is, okay, so we can learn a lot from these clouds. So why should I have to configure my system to speak to something that's already configured. And so a lot of what we're starting to do is just turn that around saying, let's go discover where this stuff is. Let's go discover the best way to get to it. Let's find the blind spots. And if somebody needs to resolve in the blind spot, let's go put something there so we can resolve there. And sort of changing, like trying to tackle this like you would building cloud technology as opposed to trying to wedge in the old way of doing things into the newer domain. That was sort of abstract, but but the point is, since the stuff changes rapidly, you can't expect somebody to keep up with configuration.
0: So pull this together with a, a troubleshooting example. Um, I know one of the things, I know you said you didn't want this to be a Blue Cat commercial, but you know, Andrew, it's okay to talk about Blue Cat. You guys right. sponsored the show and we want to okay. know. We want to know this <laughs> stuff. So, so yeah. a piece of the puzzle here to help bring this together would be the recursion path you mentioned. When you begin to stray off of what is built into DNS and you have to do, I'll just say magic to make DNS work the way you want, when you're, you, you need to be able to troubleshoot that when it doesn't work the way you expect, how do I deal with troubleshooting that recursion path since it can be complex?
2: You know, it starts with some level of visibility, which most companies don't have today. So you might be having the problem, but Ned's not having the problem. Works perfectly for Ned. You know and so me as IT guy I can't go check from my desk doesn't matter. You know this is a regional issue. This is some part of the DNS architecture. So what was different? How do I compare what was different? I need the data and the data is a huge part of this. I need to see what DNS queries came off of your machine versus Ned's and the way people tend to tap this data and get it today, it's too far down the stream to have any attribution to the end user. Plus you're going you're you're going across multiple nodes. That's what happens with DNS. And each node jams in a unique you know, query ID or message ID, and, and that's forwarded to the next node. And so I can try to collect all this stuff from all of my servers and then use advanced techniques to correlate it and say, oh, that must be your query. But if you two queried at the same time, I don't know whose query was on the next box. You know, yours was served from cache. Ned's actually went through hard to tell. And so a big part of what we do is just make sure that's visible. So I can see exactly what happened with each query. We actually jam stuff into the query. I mean, this is the private domain. None of the stuff leaks to the to public. So we jam stuff into the query so that we can trace and understand that resolution path as well.
0: Jam stuff into the query, as in you take a DNS query that is coming through, add some metadata to make it easier to do tracing?
2: Yeah, and we add metadata on the way out as well. So as an administrator, I don't necessarily need to wait for this stuff to be logged somewhere. I can actually just do a dig and inspect the query and see some, Mm -hmm. you know, understand, ah, this was resolved the wrong way. And now I, now I like, there's the thread. I see the difference, you know, and that's, that's a critical part of the process is just visibility. You know, and, and we talked about one of the problems with visibility is just the, you know these these queries get go through a resolution path, and and it, they might hop across two or three different servers, and they might be cached here, or there, or somewhere else. Th- you might have a, a a NAT gateway from Cisco or Juniper or somebody that that's actually changing the DNS queries. You yes, know, and right. and and that's the thing that's actually causing the problems. Like, you, yeah. it's so difficult to tell. And so the other side of visibility that's hard is there's just so much noise just just a ridiculous amount of noise you know um the number of queries like we sort of track it on a on a user driven machine goes up over time and i don't have exact percentages but but we're doing the analysis now and it goes up over time not because the user is doing more stuff but because you know google's changing its look ahead algorithms like when you start typing stuff you know and so mm. no ned did not query the word baby followed by 83 different other words right? right but but that streamed off of his machine because he typed baby for whatever reason Ned into Google you know and and so you see this um, you, you can't just uh, you know inspect the stuff and assume you know it, again they're just sorry there's just enough enough noise in the line that looking for anything, interesting and meaningful becomes harder if I just see this fire hose of data. And so we also try to figure out how to make the data relevant to the use case.
1: It's my own fault for being such a big Justin Bieber fan. I think that's what uh, I'm yeah. 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 So that, that, you, we can pin, we can pin that firmly on me. So I, I think it's what you said is really important because we started with the architecture, which makes sense. And then to call back to something we talked about earlier, using it in anger That's when you get to the operational reality and you need that visibility and monitoring to see what happens when you use it in anger and then resolve the issues you didn't think would crop up when you developed the architecture.
2: Yep. You know, a hundred percent, you know, and and also there's different DNS clients in the piece that we completely don't control. Like, you know, what's the the DNS client that sort of comes with windows or iOS or Mac OS or core DNS, or whatever the case, they all have their own esoteric wonky behavior on top of everything. And so, you know, like we have customers who queries are working from their Kubernetes domain if they're UDP, but not TCP. And you're just like, wait, why? Because the server is accepting UDP and TCP. So what's different with core DNS when it's DNS, you know, UDP or TCP, why would this fail? You know, and so sometimes Mm -hmm. they're really esoteric because you're, you know, th- these clients that we're sort of used to, the Windows client, the Mac client, you know, sort of comes back. Or, or you see like your Linux boxes are doing 10 to 100 times the number of queries than your user-driven devices. And you're like, well, what's going on with that? And, and you know, uh, most Linux uh, distributions don't ship with any sort of DNS caching at all. That's sort of changing with this resolve D thing. And that's a whole nother discussion of complexity. But But regardless, so is that a good thing? You know, and regardless, yeah, you have to start with seeing the data, but seeing the data in a way that makes sense. Like I I can't just jump into a haystack trying to figure this stuff out.
0: We haven't even talked about clients with a web browser doing DOH built in, skipping the OS layer completely. Yeah,
2: a hundred percent, which is another major issue inside and outside of the enterprise, which is this, you know, um, let's get rid of one of the control planes. Anyway, so that, again, that's a whole nother discussion, but but <laughs> it is. So I, don't, I don't even want to... It was
0: unfair there. for me to even bring it up, but I, I just couldn't help it. It seemed like we needed to at least make the point for this to be a complete description of the problem that we're yeah. facing in the DNS these days. A
2: hundred percent. And I think that there's an underappreciation of the effort that goes into making sure this protocol that when it's working is dial tone historically, you know, like yeah. nobody knows... Um, I meet all of these people that happen to work for one of my customers and I'm like, ah, you use me every day. They're like, really? You know, how would they know? You know, but, but if we're having lots of problems there, they might be like, Oh, you're, you're blue cat. You know, I heard somebody (laughs) screaming, but, you know, so, but that's part of the cool stuff about cloud, by the way, because all of a sudden DNS is becoming way more than dial tone to more people than just Mm. a you know, small group of dedicated professionals, There was this article by some dude from Spotify, this blog years ago called In Defense of Boring Technology. And it went on around how Spotify was using DNS for service discovery versus Zookeeper or something. And and, and the guy ends saying, by the way, right now this meets our requirements, but there's things we need to do that we can't do with DNS. So at some point this might not make sense anymore, but it was, it's part of this general underappreciation of technology protocols, services that have always worked fine and can do way more, but technologists tend to jump to the new thing and just sort of skip over the boring technology. And we obviously don't think DNS is boring, but it's nice to see it sort of front and center again.
0: Andrew, this has been a fantastic discussion. We started out near the top of the show expressing the challenges with different IT groups as they move into cloud and different styles of cloud environments. We talked a bit about your report and then got into the whole specific examples of just DNS, um, something we take for granted that is so key, and then how that's become fractured, complex, difficult to troubleshoot, and fraught with challenges specifically. So, Andrew, if people want to find more information out about uh, maybe that report, is that publicly available? Can they dig into that?
2: Absolutely. We've made it available at Bluecatnetworks.com/slash/d2c.
0: Ooh, d2c like like day two cloud. I see what you did there. Yeah. So fancy. Okay, so you can get that report, uh, dig into their research, and th- again, if you missed the the research and the report, it wasn't like. This is a report that we commissioned so that you know to buy BlueCat. That wasn't exactly what was in the report. This this is something with a lot of statistics that's worth your time about cloud, cloud adoption, what different folks are running into, that I think a lot of you that are out there listening, you're going to see yourself in this report a bit and maybe understand better how to change your approach, what some of your different options are. Uh, Andrew, are you public? Are you on the internet? Uh, Someone could reach out to, I don't know, Twitter or something like that and uh, ask you questions.
2: I'm at A Wordkin.
0: A Wordkin. Very good. Straightforward enough. Well, thanks to Blue Cat for appearing on Day2Cloud and being a sponsor today. Virtual high fives to you out there for tuning in. If you have suggestions for future shows, maybe you want us to dig into DNS a little bit more. I don't know. Maybe you do, though. I don't know. We'd love to hear whatever your suggestions are. Hit Ned or I up on Twitter. We are both monitoring the at day two cloud show Twitter account, or you can fill out the form on Ned's fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. And if you like engineering-oriented shows like this one, because I know you do, visit packetpushers.net slash subscribe, or just search for Packet Pushers in your podcatcher. You'll find our entire lineup of shows, all of our podcast newsletters, and websites are on the subscribe page if you want to dig even beyond the podcast. It's all nerdy content designed for your professional career development. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans.